Well, our, our speaker tonight is uh, a dear brother to me. He uh, is our first church planter that we've had. His name is Brian Lair, and we sent him out to uh, St. Paul to plant Trinity City Church with his wonderful wife, Tracy, and their three daughters. And four years ago, when we had Prelude to Revival, Brian kicked off the Sunday night as well, and I really appreciate him coming back in to do this. He was also an elder at our church and was um, part of some of the encouraging and vision shaping and getting the church planning movement going within our church. And so he was the first planner we've ever had. And so we're very delighted to have Brian back here bringing the word. So come on up, Brian. my face. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me to this. As Pastor Jason said, uh, four years ago, I got to kick this off, and it was awesome. It really was. It was absolutely amazing uh, to be able to be here. God showed up, or, uh, messed a lot of you up four years ago in a good and holy way, just messed so many of you up. And honestly, that's, that's my prayer this evening. I hope, I hope God wrecks you for good this, this evening, like big time, seriously, like that, that there will be a profound moment in your life where you'll look back at this evening and this week and say that God got a hold of you in a profound way. And he certainly is going to keep doing it throughout your life until you breathe your last breath. But I want this evening and this week to be part of that journey and that memory of God getting a hold of your life. And uh, I love the vision of a prelude to revival, um, like that it's called prelude to revival. We don't want to be presumptuous on what God is up to. Um, I was thinking, and I actually led, um, I preached this morning in, in St. Paul, and for those of you who don't, don't know a whole lot about Trinity City Church, I moved up there four years ago. We've been doing public services for the last uh, two and a half years. We had a little bit of a shake-up with our building, but now we're in a, a place that actually is uh, closer to some of the campuses we're reaching. You have one big, big dog campus here in Evanston. We have about seven uh, smaller schools in the area that we're in. We're right between downtown Minneapolis, downtown St. Paul. And our area is actually uh, second to uh, Boston in terms of universities and colleges per capita. So that's our, that's our demographic. That's what we're reaching. And actually, when God shook us up and he, he uh, removed us from one place and placed us into another one, we've seen a little bit more growth. Uh, we have some baptisms coming up here. We do baptisms on Easter Sunday, typically at our church. That's just an idea I ripped off uh, from the early church about 2,000 years ago. Most of, our, uh, most of our good ideas come from about that time frame. Uh, uh, it's kind of like, like scotch. Uh, the older it is, the better it is. Uh, that's the t- same thing with theology. Um, the similarities are always there. So um, this morning I was reflecting with my church uh, because I was anticipating coming here what, what revival is. And trying to think about what that is again. And one of the ways that we get at that is you have to first define this idea of renewal. And look at you, yourself as an individual and think about what does it mean to be personally renewed in terms of your sight and what you see in the gospel. Because this is the reality, brothers and sisters, and this is why we're doing this. The reality is, is that we become spiritually sluggish. And the reality is, is that there's this fog that develops in our life uh, as we try to look at the gospel, and it just starts to not take it away from us as a believer, but it starts to distort it. 
And it isn't as vivid as it used to be. So one of the ways that, that I would define what needs to happen in that situation is that we need some personal renewal. You as an individual, when, when fog is starting to obstruct your view of the gospel, what you need is personal renewal. So what is that? I would define personal renewal as experiencing the whole gospel in the whole person. Experiencing the whole gospel in the whole person. So what, I, what do I mean by that? What I mean by whole gospel is that the gospel starts to uh, drift, drift away from, I guess your idea of the gospel starts to drift away from, the, from treating it as cheap grace. Cheap grace. This is the idea that you take for granted what God has given you since the foundation of the world in Jesus Christ, and you, you treat it like it's not that big a deal, and you cheapen it. One of the other things that can happen is not only that grace becomes cheap, but you also start to think that the way to remove the fog is you need to achieve grace. You need to work to get God back. And you start to doubt the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and what he did when he burst from the grave after three days. So that's what we need. We want to have a view of the whole gospel and the whole person. What do I mean by whole person? By whole person, I mean this. The Bible talks about our relationship with God not just as an intellectual experience. One of the commands that God gives us, the greatest commandment, is to love him with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might, our strength. It's talking about your whole being interacting with your relationship with God. That personal renewal starts to happen not only when you understand the whole gospel, but your whole person understands it. It becomes not just this intellectual exercise anymore, but you have a profound experience in your being that you not only know the gospel to be true, but you can sense the presence of God by you. And it transforms you and messes you up in a holy and a good way. And so when we talk about revival, what revival is is that basically personal renewal is happening on a corporate level, on a church-wide level. That, that this is not just an individual experiencing this, and that certainly happens in the context of the church. This is a church-wide reality that you're starting to experience, that you're experiencing the whole gospel together with the whole person. And I would even want to say, take it another level than that. What happens when more than one church in your city does that? What happens when more than one church in more than one city starts to experience more than one person and, and just people upon people upon people experiencing this personal renewal. Well, there we have something called an awakening. An awakening. You know, sometimes I, I know that I, I speak these things uh, in context and it just seems like it's such a big, grandiose idea that's so out of touch with how we experience uh, some of the things we experience in our spiritual walk each and every week. But I don't think God's too, too small that he can't do an awakening. There's, there's been history in, in, in the West of awakenings happening. And I, I want to see it. I'm a young 30-year-old pastor. I, and I want to see in the experience of me ministering the gospel, and I want to see in this generation, not all the generations actually le- represented here, I want us to experience that. I think the God who made heaven and earth sent Jesus to die on the cross and raised him from the dead is powerful enough to have so much personal renewal that translates into revival, that translates into awakening. I think he can do it. Do you think he can do it? And do you think that this could be 
a catalyst. I want what happens here to spread to St. Paul. That's what I want. I'm really down here for selfish reasons. That's, that's really what it comes down to. I want to see something here that's so remarkable that it touches the Twin Cities as well. So you want it to happen. I can see you want this to happen. The reality is, is what, what is the fog? What's preventing us from seeing how great this gospel is and, and is putting up these barriers in front of us that just keeps on like pulling us back, pulling us back from really experiencing the whole gospel with the whole person. And that's what I, I'm going to talk about today. I want you to turn in your Bibles uh, if you have them. And I think if you need a Bible, I saw some people passing them out. Do you still do the hand raise thing? If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and I'm sure someone will figure out how to get you one. Um, if not, uh, I'm, I'm sure the person that has a Bible by you has 12. Just ask him for his, and you can have that one if you don't have a Bible. Turn to Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 15 through 24. I'm going to go ahead and read those uh, in the entirety before we get started here. But Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. One of the things we do at my church that um, I'm going to force you to do this, this evening is we stand as we read God's word. So would you please stand as I read God's word out loud? Again, the reading comes from the Gospel, Luke chapter 14. We're starting with verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed it is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see to it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and sit down. What is going on here? What is going on here? Jesus in the Gospel of Luke makes a habit of eating meals with people. Um, one of the things that I'll just say on the side is if you have trouble sharing uh, the faith, your faith with somebody, uh, I would suggest this is the old school way of doing it. All right, Go out, get some Chipotle right in front of you, and talk about Jesus. It's as simple as that. You don't need a program to eat Chipotle. Everybody has to do it once in a while. You just go, and you share a meal with somebody, and you talk about Jesus. This is the habit that Jesus has throughout the Gospels, just having meals with people. He has meals with people that culturally he shouldn't be having meals with, and he also has meals with the religious elite. This is who he's having this dinner with. He's sitting down with the people, I guess from the, uh, you could say from the cultural perspective, these people are supposed to get God. 
They understand him. They read, they read all about his word. They probably memorize the verses. They go to religious gatherings as much as they can. These are the people that Jesus is having this meal with. And these are also the people throughout the Gospel of Luke that he has the biggest problem with each and every time. And so this is one of the last meals that he's going to have with these religious leaders. He's already healed a man to show that God is doing amazing work. But they're grumbling about it. They don't like it because he did it on the Sabbath. He also just critiqued their worldview. He says, you are so consumed by your religious system, and he means this negatively, that you're not a humble person. You're a self-righteous, proud individual that doesn't know God. This, this dinner is getting tense, as you can tell. And so this is basically the last thing that he teaches this group of religious leaders. And this is his last meal that he's going to have with them, at least in the Gospel of Luke. He doesn't have dinner with these religious leaders anymore. So this is the last thing that he is going to teach them. And I think in light of that, there's a lot at stake here. Because Jesus really is trying to reach them. He really wants these religious individuals to experience some sort of renewal. But they can continue not to get it. They don't get it. Time and time and time again, they don't get it. And so these are the last words that Jesus has in this meal, at least to these religious individuals. And so these are important. He wants to drive home a massive, awesome reality right into their heart before he gets up from the table. So this is what the message is going to do this evening, all right? If you're following along, this is what we're going to do. The first thing I want to show you in in light of the story that Jesus is telling you, I want you to understand what this invitation is that he's talking about. I want you to have a vivid picture of what God is inviting you to in the gospel. That's the first thing we're going to wrap our minds around. And the second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at three reasons why they're not responding to the invitation. Why are they not responding to it? And that's what we're going to look at today. Before we get into that, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, help us not to take lightly this moment. This really is a moment where heaven and hell hang in the balance, where there's eternal joy at your right hand waiting for people here. If they could understand what they're being invited to, if they understand the cause that they get to be a part of, if they understand this global movement that you initiated after the death and resurrection of your son, I want people here to see that. And I want the fog to go away, Lord, this evening. I want something profound to happen in the city of Evanston and in the city of Chicago. I want something amazing and miraculous to happen on the campus of Northwestern. And this starts, this starts with getting a vivid view of what your gospel is. That's what we're after this evening. We cannot do it unless your spirit is here and you make your presence known. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's get right into it. What's the invitation? What's the invitation that he's inviting us to? What is Jesus talking about? Look at verse 15. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him, one of the religious leaders, heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at, that time, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. As I already said, there's been a tense, a tense exchange between Jesus and these religious leaders. And so this person kind of, kind of speaks up in the midst of that tense exchange. And he says, hey, 
It's great. Blessed is anyone who gets to eat bread at the fellowship with God, at the kingdom of God. And there's many ways that people understand this outburst. It could be that he's trying to break the ice because things are, are so tense, or, or maybe that he's just actually really sincere. More, most likely, what I would think is happening here is that he thinks that he's, he's invited, that he's, he's going to be at this banquet, that he's going to go there. But one of the things that Jesus knows is that he's kidding himself. And most of the religious leaders at this table are kidding themselves to think that they are actually on their way to this banquet that they are being invited to. So he sees that in their eyes. He sees that, that things have, so, has, have been so cloudy and foggy in, in, in front of their face that they are basically blind to what the gospel is. So Jesus describes, or rather this man, when his outburst, describes what the kingdom of God is like. It's like eating bread with God, to simplify what's being said. It's like sitting down and having a meal with God. That is an intimate picture that the God of the universe is presenting to you here this morning. That there is a reality coming your way, brothers and sisters, where you get to sit down at a table, as it were, across from the God that gave you breath in your lungs. That's what we're talking about this, this evening. That's what we are setting our minds on, is that type of reality. Often the Bible talks about our fellowship with God, especially the ultimate fellowship we get in the new heavens and in the earth, as sitting down with God in a meal. And though Jesus starts to unpack that type of image in his story that he tells. He tells a story about a man giving a great banquet. And the invitations go out to many people. And now he says, he sends out the, the reminder for all those that have RSVP'd in, and he says, come. It's ready now. The party is ready. And if you understand what Jesus is saying here, he's, he's not talking about some dumb, boring party that people are being invited to. And actually, the word that's being used in this context, it's talking about an amazing party, one of those parties that may take years to prepare And as Jesus is using this imagery, what he is saying is that this is the party that God has prepared since the foundation of the world. That's the party we're talking about. We're not talking about you texting a couple buddies saying, hey, I'm hanging around here in my PJs. I got a bag of Doritos and a season one of Downton. Let's check it out together, right? This is going to be a great time. This is much deeper and more profound than that, isn't it? We're talking, this is more like, like a wedding feast type of party when it's done right. There's dancing and there's food and there's just something to celebrate. That's the invite. This is the party of parties that nobody in their right mind would miss out on this. This is the party that leads to fellowship with God forever. As Revelation 21 says it, that it's even unhindered by sin and death and pain. Because those are old things at this party. This party is all new because the old things have passed away. That is the banquet that we are talking about. So Jesus presents it like this. The big day is about to happen. And you have to see here the way that the story is unfolding is that these people that he's referring to have already RSVP'd in. They already said, hey, we're coming. We're planning on being there. And so what's happening when the servant goes out is he's just reminding them that hey, it's getting underway. This is the last reminder, you know, the last email that gets into your inbox right before an event that you RSVP to. Like someone shoots you a a text message that says, hey, I know you're coming. Tonight's the night. This This is where you park. This is how you get here. So what's being assumed here is that these people are coming. But they said that they're coming. 
super significant as we continue to unpack this story. So that's what I want you to have in your mind, is that type of party. The party that God has been working on for eternity. The party that he gave us a glimpse of in the death and resurrection of the Son. And the party that's described at the very end of the, of the Bible, in the new heavens, in the new earth. That's what Jesus is unpacking here for us. But, as we will see, some people don't show up. They said they were coming, they don't show up. I want to give you three reasons. There might be more in this text, but I want to focus in on three reasons why people do not show up to this party. Let's look at the first reason in verse 18. The first reason will be because we give priority to other things. Look at verse 18 with me. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And the other said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So this is unexpected. The, the host of this party is expecting these people to come. And excuse after excuse after excuse comes rolling in, even though they said that they would show up. So, what's the first excuse? The excuse here is that they are giving priority to other things. That's the first reason why they're missing it. And you know he's aiming this at the religious leaders across the dinner table. He's saying to them, you are going to miss out on this party because you are giving priority to other things. You are going to miss out on fellowship with God forever because you are giving priority to other things. And notice what the things are. They're not bad things. The excuse isn't, well, I plan on going to have a case of Miller Lite in the ditch somewhere, and that's, uh, I just got to miss out for that. It's not, it's not something stupid, all right? This is like, this is reasonable explanations. Like, it's, it's good to get married, it's, it's good to have business transactions and to care for the things you're investing in. Those are all good things. But if you compare those things to what you are being invited to, then they start to become very foolish. Then it doesn't make sense why even those good and amazing things would take priority over the kingdom of God. Why they would take priority over the gospel message. Why on earth would they take priority over the party of parties and fellowship with God forever? So that's the thing that we're seeing here. And now, when I say something like um, what we have here is they're good things, and basically the way that you can say is that, that these are good things that have become ultimate things. That's the problem. Uh, they've, they've come so important in this person's life that they, they trump even the most ultimate thing that you could ever be invited to, and that is the party of God. So these are all good things, but the problem is, is that they become ultimate things. My wife will tell you that I make a decent husband, I'm decent, all right, but I make a terrible God, terrible God. There's nothing wrong with getting married. There is an issue, though, when you make your spouse an ultimate thing, where you make your career an ultimate thing, and that's what is going on here. Now, whenever I say something like this, I want to nuance this a little bit and say that there's two ditches that you can always drive off of when, I, when you think about uh, being careful in your life of not making good things ultimate things. Because 
There's a tendency, therefore, in your heart then to overreact. And you basically become this religious killjoy that doesn't like to have any fun anymore because you're like, well, I don't want to be careful. This thing could become like a functional idol in my life. And yeah, I know that's, I know that's a filet mignon, but I really don't want to enjoy that. That, would, that, would, that could become an idol. And you just become very, very, very tense. The way that I like to illustrate this is imagine you're giving like a niece, a nephew, a, a son, a daughter a present and, and you really want them to enjoy that present. That's why you gave them the thing. That's why you invested the cash into it. But they just kind of brush it inside. They're like, oh, I don't really care about this present. I just kind of want to hang out with you. I, speaking personally, like, that's nice that he wants to hang out with me. I bought the present. Enjoy the present. And I think so many religious people in the end of days, God is going to throw up his hands and say, you are impossible to shop for. You don't enjoy, you don't enjoy anything that I give you. So one of the things that I want to encourage you on when I say don't let good things become ultimate things, that doesn't mean you shouldn't enjoy the good things that God gives you. But enjoy them for what they are. It's not ultimate. It's not your God. But enjoy them as gifts from God's hands. But the more routine way that we drift is when we do make good things ultimate things. And this is like giving your niece or your nephew or getting your kids a gift. And they they they. they take the gift and they take it into a different room and like it's like you give them an xbox it's like you, you know the boys in grade school you give them an xbox and then he goes into his bedroom and you don't see him again until he's 30 okay that's like that's the other extreme right that you don't want that you don't get a thank you you don't you don't get anything you don't get an interaction of gratitude that strengthens your relationship between father and son and that's another reality that we have to be careful of so that's the first reason why people are missing out on the party of parties, why people are missing out on fellowship with God. The reason being is that they've taken good things that have made them ultimate things, and now this is the excuse. Why you can't spend time with God, why you can't be on mission for Him, why, why your prayer life is bombing, is because good things have probably become ultimate things in your life, and God has lost His rightful place in the center And I want to just say this before I move on to the second point. One thing you have to see here is who is he talking to? Is he he talking to somebody that never grew up going to church, that's just really wrestling with these things, and that's the issue that they have? No! He's talking to the people that know the Scriptures, that show up to the religious festivals, whatever they are. They're always there, wearing the nicest clothes. They stick out because they love the praise from other people. That's the person that they're talking to. He's talking to us! We're the ones that have the danger of making other things our priority and missing out on this party. And that's the reality. So let's look at the second one in light of that. The first reason why people miss out on the party of God is because we've given priority to other things. The second reason is because we think we are worthy. We think we are worthy. Look at verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there's room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel, compel people to come in that my house may be filled. The master is angry that these excuses have come in. He's angry. 
I mean, just put yourself in there. I mean, so, so a lot of people really struggle with the justice and anger of God, but you, can, you see it in such, such relatable and common terms here. I mean, when you, whenever you throw a party, whenever you throw an event, if, if, especially for those of you that really like to host and do these things, there is a sense, is there not, that you put yourself into that. There's a sense that you are pouring all of yourself into this event that you're preparing. So it's not that somebody just didn't show up to this event there's this sense that they didn't show up to be with you because you poured yourself into this. And you would be rightfully angry if somebody said that they were coming and then they didn't show up. In the same way, God's anger in this story, at least how Jesus is telling it in this parable form, is rightfully angry. That somebody wouldn't show up to this party when, like these religious leaders, they should get it. They should know better than not to show up to this party. So he's angry. And he starts to invite other people in. So in contrast for, to these people that have better things to do, the invite goes out to those that you would least expect to be invited to a party like this. The people you expect would come have been invited. They said they were going to show up, and they didn't show up. And now the invite is starting to go out to the people that you would not believe would ever be invited to this party. The first group is described as poor and crippled, and blind, and lame. And the second group are described as those that are basically coming from the suburbs. They're being invited into the city, and they most likely that people think that this is being referred to the Gentiles. This is the group of people that, unlike the Jewish people, didn't have this awesome story about the relationship with God. So again, this is who's showing up. Who's showing up now to the party and filling the seats are those that you least expect to come to this party. That's why I think in verse 23, when the word compel is being used, why that's a significant word to focus on. Because compel is being used there, not so much that the, the host of this party is forcing them to go there. No, 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 no. I think there's something else going on there. I think he needs to compel them because most likely this type of group, their reaction to this invite would be like, what? Me? I'm invited to this party? Like that's No, 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 no. You must mean those religious leaders, those, those religious folks. They're the ones invited to this party, right? Like, I'm, I'm not worthy to go to a party like that. And that's why the host has to compel them to come. Because they would never expect to set foot in there and, and think that they deserve to be there. I want to say also, just on the side there, that this is probably a context where there's some people here that don't really have a solid church background, that you're really here, you're kicking the tires of Christianity. That's why you're here. That's why you're hanging out with this mob. You're just like, I just, there's something about Jesus. I want to, I want to figure that, figure that thing out. You know what? You deserve to be here. You deserve to be here. You shouldn't, you shouldn't feel forced to be here, but if you, you shouldn't also feel like you shouldn't be here. I want EBF and I want this prelude to be a place where people can really, really explore who Christ is in a context where they feel that that is a worthy cause and they are welcome to do it. And if that's you here, if that's you and you're here this evening, man, welcome. This is the place to do it. Come back tomorrow morning. Come back all week. This is a perfect season in the life of this church to explore who the Christ is. So here you go. You have a contrast now between the type of person who shows up to the party and the type of person who does not show up to the party. And really what it comes down to is one person thinks they are worthy and they deserve to be invited, and the other person doesn't think that they have any business being there. 
One of the ways that Jesus teaches on the heart of a person who understands the kingdom of God uh, is, 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 is describing them in these very humble terms. Uh, for example, Luke 13.30 says that some who are last will be first, and some are first who will be last. Luke 14.11, who everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 14, verse 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's the type of person that we're describing here this evening. You want to be invited to the party of God. You want to be in a posture in your life where your heart is ready for this type of invitation. Humble yourself before this almighty God. Bring yourself to your face before him this evening. And as soon as you think to yourself about the depth of your sin, that you are drowning in that and there's no hope for you, that's when you are in the perfect place for the God of heaven and earth to reach down into that water of sin and pull you back out. Because you know, you know you're in over your head in this life. You know you're unworthy of this relationship that God is calling you to. I think one of the most dangerous phrases that happens uh, off of a religious person's lips is the phrase, I'm a good person. It's a dangerous, dangerous phrase to utter in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the precious price that was paid on that cross. There's many groups that, that I'm sure you deal with in this context and that I deal with in St. Paul that you have to minister to that have an idea that I have to be a good person to receive this invitation. One group is the de-church group. That you've, you grew up going to church. You were baptized, maybe. You were confirmed. And now you don't, you don't, you don't show up regularly or you don't show up at all. You kind of have this, this weird, twisted theology where you're thinking like, well, I love Jesus. I just don't like, uh, like the church. I just don't like that. She's, she's just kind of an ugly bride. Well, Jesus loves her. And if you just my bride, there's, it becomes personal, all right? And so that's one of the, the issues is sometimes you, you have a church background, but, but there's this self-righteousness that has been built in you, even so much so that it, it expresses itself. And this is a common expression, especially for my generation. I like Jesus. I just don't like those, those uh, self-righteous people called the church. And you, in, in your, your pursuit of not being like them, have become that very self-righteous person that now thinks that you are, are worthy enough to not even have to put up with God's precious bride, the church. You have another demographic, and this is one that is in the Twin Cities a lot, and I call them the overly churched. They just have a little bit too much religion in their background. These are the people that always show up and do the worst damage, especially at a church plant. This, I always like to tell them, hey, there's a mega church down the street. You should check out that place. That's a, that's a great place to go to. Because they, they, they're always, they're, they're always, they have the spiritual gift of complaining. That's their spiritual gift. They love to use it, and they love to use it, and then it terrorizes the church. I remember one pastor described it as, you know, the Bible in Corinthians describes the church as the body of Christ, right? It's the body of Christ. So they fit in as like the appendix, all right? They don't really do anything but complain. And when they do really show up and do something, they just explode and kill the whole thing. All right? That's the overly religious person. They're so self-righteous and puffed up that they become dangerous. And they'll miss out on the party of God because they think they deserve to be there. And then you have the unchurched. Or you're an unbeliever. Maybe you're here this evening. You're welcome to be here, as I said. 
But this type of baggage has probably clouded your judgment on what Christ is calling you to this evening. And you honestly think, and this is just the way that you've learned how to do this religious thing, you just think that, man, this, this invitation sounds good, and this, everything in your being wants to respond this way, that I just have to start doing things. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? How many Bible studies do I have to go to? Do I have to start praying now? Do I have to, do I have to pray for like, other, other Christians? That's weird. I'm an introvert. Why do, I, why do they make me do that? What's traveling mercies? I have no idea what that is. Uh, what are you talking about? Accountability partners? I just call them friends. I just don't know what you're talking about. You get the idea. Like, it's just, you, you, you come in here, and, you, and you're thinking, like, all right, this Christian thing sounds great. Now i got to work. This invitation is saying, no, 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 no. This isn't about working to earn, earn this invitation. This invitation is going out to the most unworthy people possible. And you know it. You know it. And you know what? In the midst of that darkness of your sin that you know you have, this is the party you're meant to be at. This is the place where you receive the grace and forgiveness that you deserve not because of anything you have done, but because of what Jesus the Christ did in his cross and in his resurrection. Are you guys following? You, you get this? Amen? This is right. I don't, you're like Minnesotans. Minnesotans never talk back. I mean, I think you're different here in Chicago. You just let me know if you're hearing me here, okay? Let me see. I won't accuse you of being charismatic or anything. It's fine. Just, come on. It's a revival. Let's get with it. It's a revival here. Let's look at the third one. Let's look at the third one, all right? Redeem yourself here, guys. Verse 24. Third reason why these people are missing out on the party of God. Look at verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Third reason I see here in that small verse is that they are missing out on the party of God because they think they have all the time in the world because they think they have all the time in the world. So he's teaching here that there are people that were invited to this banquet. They gave excuses, and they didn't show up. And in anything, if they think to themselves, they probably thought they deserved to go there in the first place. Those are the issues we just unpacked. One of the things that Jesus is emphasizing here in this party is that the seats do fill. The seats that do fill, and those that are eventually invited, especially those that know that they don't deserve to be at this party, they come in. And they fill the seats. He says, none of those men who were invited, who already RSVP'd in, who has been doing this religious thing all along, but in the depths of their soul, they're just dead. They look so great on the outside, but God knows their heart, and they're self-righteous and consumed with pride and works in their, in their, in their relationship with God and thinking they deserve all the favor that he gives. And he's saying, yeah, they were invited. They lost their seat. The time has run out, and the door is closed. And this is just, it's supposed to be a really sad picture. Really sad picture. Imagine being on the outside of those doors when the party is erupting with music and laughter and dancing and food on the inside. And the most enjoyable thing happening there is that there are individuals, unworthy individuals, sitting across the table with God with the God of the universe, the being that you were made for. He's in that room. And you putzed around, and now the door closed. And your time has run out. One thing that a prelude to revival should afford us is a sense of urgency, if that is speaking to you this evening. A sense of urgency. One of the ways that I want to describe this um, is I call this a snooze button spirituality. 
All right, you know what a snooze button is? I mean, some of you whack it four or five times in the morning. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It comes up, it's time to get up, it's time to get back to reality. You're just, you're just groggy, you're just like, no, 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 no. I don't want reality, I want sleep. I want sleep, I don't want, I don't want anything, I just want to sleep. Some of you have, re, have, have treated your relationship with God like this. You know in your heart that you don't have a relationship with God. You know in your heart that there's this self-righteousness that's, that's fogging up your view of the gospel. What you need is repentance, and you know that. You know you need to humble yourself. You know you need to make yourself last so that you may be first, as Jesus says. You know that's the type of faith that he's calling you to. But what you've been doing is you've been smacking the snooze button in this walk with God, and you're thinking, I'm just going to do it another day. I'm just going to do it another day. I'm going to do it another day. This is the day. This is the evening. This is the time when the door is still open to the banquet feast that God has prepared for you, that he's been setting this table since the foundation of the world, brothers and sisters. And the door is open this evening, and I want to see you walk through it. I don't want to see you miss this. I don't want to see anybody miss this from St. Paul or Evanston, because this is the thing that the Christ died for and rose from the dead and continues to reign from heaven this evening so that you would have the power and the confidence because of faith he can place in your heart to walk through that door on your knees and have fellowship with God forever. I want that to happen this evening. And I see this picture here, to bring it back to the context of Jesus, where he's sitting across from these religious leaders. He's looking them in the eye. I wonder if he has tears. It's just, he's, just, he's just begging them. It's like, it's one of the things that I have to do with, with, uh, with one of my daughters, the oldest one, she's five, and she, she's nuts. She's crazy. She, 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 doesn't, she doesn't ever listen. She's just, she's just letting them, and it's going to get worse when she's a teenager. That's going to be terrible. And she's like, I mean, she's like, for example, I mean, she does like a flip off the table. She's a prodigy. Um, so she's doing like these flips off the table, and I'm just like, stop it. She does another flip. Stop it. Do another flip. And at some point, you just got to grab the girl by the shoulders, get down on your knees, look at them in the eyes, and say, stop it. You're going to hurt yourself. And I see here, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, religious people across the table from him, they're looking at him with spiritual cross eyes the whole time. They don't get that this is God in the flesh begging them to come to the banquet. This is his last meal with them. And he's grabbing them by the shoulders, as it were, looking them in the eye and says, tonight, come. Come. Don't put anything else in front of this this evening. Don't think you are worthy for this, but humbly come to this banquet anyways. And don't waste one more second. I want to close with a prayer that I prayed this morning uh, that actually comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and one of the reasons um, that I want to close with this prayer is that there's a similar thing that Moses was given in one of these speeches in the book of Deuteronomy to his people. They're about to go into the promised land and start to inherit all the good things that God has promised him. Uh, they're they're going to enjoy this, this relationship with God that's been unmatched in all of history. And one of the ways that Moses, in his message that I'm going to turn into a prayer, starts to awaken them from the fog is to give them a big picture of what they're dealing with here. There are questions in that message. If you ever want to look at it, it's in Deuteronomy 4, uh, 32 through 40. Um, and I'm going to take some of the, the Exodus-focused narrative out of it and then infuse it with gospel narrative. 
But what I love about it is the questions and the things that it's drawn your attention to. It's, if you're doing a research project on this, these questions are awesome, are awesome. So in this closing prayer, I just want to give you a picture of how big the thing is that you're dealing with this evening, how big this mission is that you're going to be called to time and time again throughout this week, and how awesome this party is that you are being invited to. So let me pray for you guys. Search all of history from the beginning of time until now and ask anyone else from one end of creation to the other, has anything as great as this ever been said or or seen or heard before? Has any movement heard the voice of God speaking at the cross as you did and you survived because his son took your judgment so that you could have his grace? Can any other movement, global movement in this world, claim to have a God who redeemed a people for himself through his son by dying on a cross, being buried in a tomb, and rising again on the third day? Yet this is what your God did for you in the gospel. And you can see it. He showed you these things so that you would know that Jesus is Lord and there is no other. He let you hear his voice speaking through his son so that he could give you a mission and a purpose. He let you see by faith his son die on a cross and rise from the dead so that he could speak to you through it. Because he loves his son, Jesus, he chose you in him before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons and daughters. Although sin and death were greater than you, he defeated sin and death so that you can have rest forever from your greatest enemies. So remember this, and keep it firmly in mind. Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, and there is no other. You love him, and follow his commands, because he first loved you, and made his home with you. This message of the gospel is given to you, so that you may have everlasting life, and wait with hope for the day that when the Lord gives you a place, where death is no more. Neither there is mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the former things have passed away for all time. Give us that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.